Starting this fall, amazing local educators will be recognized with the launch of Superior Educators. This collaboration between several local school personnel and the Portage Health Foundation is meant to celebrate the people who make our area schools a great place to learn and grow. All educators at K-12 public schools in Barraga, Houghton, Keweenaw, and Otsunagan counties are eligible, including bus drivers, teachers, support staff, and more. Nominate a Superior Educator you know at superioreducators.org. Welcome back to Copper Country Today. I'm Grant Ducetto. It's brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. You can learn more at phfgive.org. So, Darian, how old are you, and how did you get involved with Superior Search and Rescue? So I'm 23 years old. Uh, I got involved with Search and Rescue a few years ago, uh, about three, four-ish years ago now. And basically, you know, it, it was something that I saw. Uh, they were out at K-Day at Michigan Tech. Um, and then I got involved and realized, you know, I have a little bit of background in nonprofits and volunteering for years with Relay for Life. And I saw, well, you know, we need money, so I got us money. And from there, I've been a golden goose. <laughs> you mentioned K-Day, but if you've been to really any event around town, you're likely to see somebody from Superior Search and Rescue. I know that you were involved with Afternoon on the Town during Orientation Week for Michigan Tech. When you're at these events, are you looking to just introduce yourself, or do you need new members and you're trying to recruit? What is the goal of you know making yourself known throughout the community? So it's a little bit of twofold. One is our event on Sunday is we're doing a training session for law enforcement and other first responders that we work with in Mass City. That's going to take the first half of the afternoon. And then we're doing an open house to have the people come on out, come and visit, see what we do. Um, We don't have any requirements for anybody to join. Um, We do do a background check. Uh, but we teach you everything that you need to know, and we need skills across the board. You know, you don't have to be out in the bushes looking for someone. You can help out with our events that we do. You can also help out with uh, managing people, getting people registered. Um, there's skills for everybody. So how many people are in the organization at the moment, roughly? Uh, so right now we have about 30 members uh, on our list that are active within our organization to help out. Um, from searches to events to just daily operations. And how does Superior Search and Rescue get involved with some sort of incident that is going on? I know that they were looking for a man over on the Hancock side of the canal not too long ago. We had the Cam Bassinan tragedy, obviously, in the springtime. But you've also been involved in things like uh, using your drone to find hot spots in a fire in a landfill over in Antonagon. So when law enforcement or emergency personnel of some kind need you, how does that process work? How do you get brought into the fold? So usually what ends up happening um, is one of two methods. One, we will either, our president will either get a phone call um, or we get dispatched just like any other first responder in the, in the area from uh, Nagani Regional Dispatch uh, through VHF. They'll send out a page. We will respond and then we will get our crew moving. Um, in certain situations, like for example, the fire down in Antonaga, we actually, uh, one of our cohorts, Mike Coker, uh, we work with him a lot and called him up, said, hey, we know you have this big fire, we have an asset, would you be interested in us bringing it down to use it? Uh, he said yes, we went down, and it was, we spent last the whole most of the night with him 
and we were actually just identifying hotspots, going hotspot here, hotspot there, uh, and we were able to help with being able to help control the fire. I know that at that particular landfill, because it's a big one, mm-hmm. that they've had a fire or two in their day. And this is the first time they've used an unmanned aerial vehicle, a drone, to mm-hmm. kind of help out. Did they say to you, you know, how much this helped? You know, how much um, less effort they had to put in this time around compared to, I believe there's a fire there that lasted over a week, not too long ago, maybe a decade or so. Um, yeah, I did talk to, I was out on that incident and I was actually assisted uh with the little bit of the fire operations, uh, several firefighters came up to me and talked to me after that we were finished up. They're like, this was the greatest tool that we could ever have. We were able to quickly identify the spots, get water where it needed to go. Even at the end when we were cleaning up, we have a spotlight on it. So we were just, I was just shining the spotlight down on people and they were able to pick up their tools pretty quick. Um, one firefighter made a remark on, you know, she was spent about five minutes looking for a clamp that she dropped. And I put the spotlight, she found it immediately. You were talking about the fact that, one, you're a student at Tech, but you have a full-time job on top of that. Is it difficult to find the time to be part of the search and rescue team as well? Uh, sometimes it is a little bit difficult, but, you know, I always, I've been able to manage my time. I've learned in the past that there's only so much I can do, and I've cut back on other things that I've done to focus on my three big things, which is school, work, and, of course, search and rescue. And are there requirements for members that they have to be involved with a certain percentage, say, of the, the calls that go out? Uh, currently, we do not have any requirements on that front. We do ask that members at least attend a meeting at least once a semester. We follow Michigan Tech semesters you know, roughly every four or five months, so every, every trimester mm-hmm. of the year. Um, as far as the kind of the, the demographics of the group, are they mostly locals who live year-round, or do you get a lot of students that maybe are coming from out of town for the school year? So what's interesting about that is over the last several years, um, we've seen more of an increase of locals joining um, and less students. And then, of course, you know, before it was a, more students and more lo- or less locals. So it's, it kind of changes year to year. Right now, we have about, a, would say, about 60% local, 40% Michigan Tech student. And as far as, you know, how you do this, a lot of volunteers, but there's equipment concerns, and you got to mobilize and all the rest. Do you apply for grants? Where does the funding for this come from? So we are an a all-volunteer, all-nonprofit organization. All of our funds come either from our own pocket or they come from grants that we get, like, from example, for example, the Portage Health Foundation. We recently got a, a major grant from them to help pay for renovations on our mobile command trailer. Um, I do all the grant writing, and I am working on getting more and more donations. But everything that you see that we have has all come from local donations or grants. Where's your jurisdiction? Is it five counties, like, say, the Western UP Health Department, or is it just here locally in the Copper Country? Where do you serve to? So we serve Houghton County, Keweenaw County, and recently uh, we've added in Ontonagon County into our main area of responsibility. But we are also able to go out for mutual aid to Berga County or even Gogebic County or anybody else that has requested our services in the region. As far as your organization, are you one of many, or is this a unique thing to the Copper Country? 
for us, we are the only 501c3 uh, search and rescue team in the area. Um, in Houghton, Houghton Keweenaw, Ontonagon. Uh, Barriga County Search and Rescue is also a 501c3 that we work with sometimes. And then there is a Gogebic County Search and Rescue, but they are under the Sheriff's Office. They are not a 501c3. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of the volunteer fire departments, they'll kind of divvy up responsibilities depending on the county. Mm -hmm. And Search and Rescue may be a function for certain departments, whereas maybe it's a backseat for others. How do you work with those different groups to make sure that you're not deploying the same resources twice? So generally, um, in Houghton and Keweenaw County, usually how it works out is if there's a missing individual and it meets certain requirements, we are requested by law enforcement to come out and assist. Um, we will help with law enforcement uh, to advise them on different options on what they can do. We do not take command of the, of the situation, but we are a tool for them to use. And how often do you get called out? Is it something that, you know, once a month or so something crops up, or is this more of a maybe every three or four months type deal? Usually it's every three to four months or so that we'll have a incident that lasts longer than 10 minutes. Um, one of the things that we, we have really heavily focused on is call us early, because I would much rather go out and get called at 3 a.m., drive all the way up to Calumet, get there and go well, we found the person and go home rather than get called three, four, five days later. Well, we've always heard that the first 24 hours is so critical when you're talking about finding somebody. Yes. With the uh, kind of the remote and also the elderly population in the area, are there circumstances? Because I've seen it, you know, with press releases coming in from the sheriff's department. Well, the last time anybody saw this person was two weeks ago. <laughs> so let us know if, if you've recognized him recently. Do you get into those types of situations a lot? Sometimes we will get involved with them. Sometimes we don't. It's all dependent on what evidence there is to support a search. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if a individual was last seen driving away, they could be anywhere in, you know, the U.S. within, you know, a day's time. Mm -hmm. You know, where do you start? If we have credible evidence, say we located their vehicle at, you know, three blocks from their house, we can then head out and go, okay, well, we'd have a starting position and we can go from there. When you're talking about the entire Upper Peninsula, you can't search the entire Upper Peninsula at once. No, it's kind of big. Yes. <laughs> school demonstrations. Do you ever talk to young children, you know, at uh, elementary school, maybe the middle school level, that if you do get lost, you find yourself in this situation, here's some of the steps that you should take just to make sure that you do survive it? Um, that's not something that we've gotten into. Um, we're looking into some more options uh, to try to do like social media posts to, you know, help further knowledge. Um, one of the big things that we always tell people is that you need to let someone know where you're going to be and when, you know, when you're expected to be back, because those are the key, you know, where you're going to be and when you're going to come back are the two key things that people need to know, because one, that gives us a place to start. And two, if you're not back by that time, well, something could have happened. Mm -hmm. So it gives us a place to start looking. As far as where your equipment is stationed, do you have your own facility? Do you piggyback on a local department? Where does that kind of relationship start and end? So our command trailer is stored at one of our members' houses. Um, all the rest of the equipment, uh, like, the, for example, the drone. The drone is stored at with me because I'm the UAV coordinator, and then my roommate is also one of our, is our chief pilot. 
Um, so we'll store certain pieces of equipment with us for quick deployment and then other pieces of equipment such as our trailer that has like all of our snowshoes, uh, you know, our TV processing server, all that will all stay in one semi-central location here in Houghton. Speaking of the drone, what are we talking about cost-wise? So this first unit that we have gotten uh, cost about $5,000 all said and done, um, thanks to a wonderful grant from the Portage Health Auxiliary and the Gilded Rose Gift Shop at the Portage Hospital. Um, they funded the project back in 2019, and it was the first program in the entire region um, for drone operations. It took us about a year or so to get started, um, and recently we've been using more, it more and more, not just for searches, but also for other incidents, like, for example, the Hancock tanker spill or the KW landfill fire. Um, the program itself is starting to, has grown from being a tool to being its own sub-team within our organization. Um, right now we have seven pilots and uh, we're consistently growing. Talk a little bit about the Hancock tanker spill, because I was on scene that day, so I'm kind of familiar with what was going on. What was your role? When did you start? Were you monitoring just the canal, or were you actually at the scene where the tanker overturned? So I was actually not at that scene. Um, I was on vacation at that time. <laughs> um, but one of our other members did go out, and the primary role of the UAV, or drone, was to actually, one, on the initial response, get some aerial imagery of both the accident itself, where the fuel was going, and then we continued to monitor the portage. We kept taking pictures at all the common spaces that we saw fuel, and we kept going back day after day. Um, when I ended up returning back from vacation uh, two days after the incident, I took back over going through and taking pictures. When we were doing that for about a week or so after the incident until all the fuel was gone. And those photos, those videos, they were actually being used by the EPA and other government agencies to determine, you know, is the canal open today? And what parts, you know, do you have to be careful of if you're doing some sort of maritime activity, right? Yep. So all the images that we were getting and processing for um, both the Houghton County Emergency Measures and for EPA, Eagle, and all the other agencies that were involved with that incident, they were very dependent on those images because they needed to know where was the fuel today. We were doing it in the morning and in the afternoon. Obviously, you're a nonprofit, but you are not a government agency. Is there any um, issues when you have federal agencies coming in from maybe out of town? Do they know who you are? <laughs> Is there any <laughs> worry about coordinating those types of efforts? So usually it's not really been a problem in the past. Um, it, we don't expect it to be a problem in the future. It's a... This, these are the services that we offer. If you wish to use them, we are here. If not, that is up to, up to them on mm -hmm. the, what they want to do. And I would assume that the local officials are probably the ones kind of in charge of those types of responses. So they go, hey, this is the group that we usually turn to for something like this. Yes, that is very true. They, you know, we, we've got a very good working relationship with both the sheriff's office and other law enforcement agencies. They're, they're pretty good at working with us on you know, keeping us involved in different incidents that pop up. I know this wasn't the first tanker incident. I know one happened down in Chassel not that long ago, two or three years ago. Was Superior Search and Rescue involved with that one as well, or was this the first time that you used a drone to kind of map out the consequences from an oil spill? This is the first time something that we've been outside our just original mission. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, we, while we are a search and rescue team, we're also considered what's called CERT, Community Emergency Response Team. So, and we're working on expanding that a little bit more over the next few years. Um, but yes, this was the first incident that we've ever been involved outside of just searches. As far as, you know, the searches go, the big one happened in the springtime with Cam Best, and unfortunately he was found, but um, you mentioned having snowshoes on hand. Are there good times of the year to have this type of thing happen where if somebody goes missing, it's a little bit easier to find them than others? A lot of people would assume that once you get into the summertime and you get the thick growth and the leaves are out, that it's kind of hard to see somebody on the ground underneath all that. We see less calls during the, the winter because you're able to actually follow the tracks. You can see you know, where they were stepping. So we were able to go through and quickly track them and find them. Um, usually it's during the spring and summer and fall that we usually have more of our incidents that come up. Um, and that does be pose a problem. Uh, I mean, any error asset that you put up, you know, you won't be able to see through trees. That's you, if you can't visually see through it, you can't see through it. Um, one of the things that we've found recently on a few of our searches and other incidents is that the drone itself has served a purpose at being able to clear um, roads and open fields very quickly. If we're able to quickly run through and clear a field, we don't have to send a team out there to go verify and go through that area. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, you know, we'll, we'll double check it, but it's not our, we have other priorities when we're doing a search. It allows the ground teams to, to focus on the harder to see areas. Yep. I know that Civil Air Patrol, I believe somebody came from Traverse City, maybe the Coast Guard, with some sort of aerial support for, say, the best in, uh, search and rescue effort. How do you make sure that you're coordinating everything so that a drone and a plane don't run into each other? So that is where we get into the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, they set up the rules and laws that we have to follow. Um, our program, any drone in the United States, cannot exceed 400 feet above ground level. Um, so we keep everything below that. We'll usually fly at about 200 to 250 feet or so um, on any incident. When there is another aircraft in the air, um, we'll actually bring ours down uh, because ours, so according to the FAA, Planes and helicopters have a the right of way compared to a drone. Um, and just to help make it easier for air access, while they're up in the air, we are down on the ground. I know with a lot of the plane patrols, if the weather is bad, that they're not up because it's hard to see. Do drones have those same restrictions, or are you able to go out in a bad rainstorm or maybe even a blizzard-type situation and still be able to complete the functions of the drone with an overhead visual. So our current unit actually cannot be in heavy rain or heavy snow. Um, we're actually looking at getting another unit, hopefully by the end of the year or even early next year, that can handle those those type of weather. Um, we have been able to deploy our unit uh, in weather that isn't so well for other air assets. So we had... You know, we've been told before that, like, you know, a helicopter can come up, but you're going to have to wait till the, the weather clears off the radar. Well, we are able to quickly deploy in under an hour, really anywhere in the region, well, within the Copper Country, and be up in the air within two minutes once we are on scene. 
Um, and we can just look out the window and go, yep, looks like we can fly. And, oh, weather, weather's starting to come in, and let's bring it down for a few minutes, and let's wait. Oh, let's throw it back up. And that's one of the things that we can do compared to a, like a helicopter or a plane. You know, they're looking at it from weather charts and, you know, other resources while we're able to just go out and look outside. Darren, what's your favorite story so far since you've been involved? It could be a search and rescue operation. could be a different function altogether. What's your favorite, most memorable kind of story that you're going to tell your kids someday? So I think uh, one of the one of the ser- stories that I have, um, back earlier this year, we had a search up near Forsman Road for an individual, uh, an elderly lady. And during the search, um, one, it was very successful. We did locate her. Uh, live and well. And the second thing that was really funny um, was with our drone, actually. Uh, We were deployed at night, and we were flying, and we located a very warm object. And we're like, what is that? That that could be it. We were able to see that warm object pretty quickly and sent a few state troopers to go investigate and a few deputies. Turned out it was a bear. You you can probably take a guess at their response on that, but um, even then, that was one good thing that came out of it was being able to quickly identify those hot spots and go, okay, let's quickly get someone there because this is the middle of the night. You can't really see, but because we have the ability to see uh, thermal imagery, you know, we were able to identify the hot spot quickly, go investigate, and go, yep, okay, that was it. No, that wasn't, and that's one of the advantages to what we have. With the thermal imagery, how good of a lock do you need on an object to get a thermal reading? Let's say it's summertime, you can't get a real good visual of something because you got all the leaves on the trees. Can the thermal see through that to a person below, or does it not have that type of capability? So it does not have that type of capability. It's a common misunderstanding from most people that um, we can see through leaves, for example. Uh, You can cut through it, but it's not... You're not going to get the best image through it. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, we usually, when we're flying at about 100, 200 feet, um, we can easily identify warmer objects. Uh, and usually for about every 100 feet that we're in the air above the ground, uh, we lose about 10 degrees or so. So a object at about, like a human will show up at, say, you know, surface temperature at 70, 80 degrees or so on, a, you know, say a day like today. Um, but there, what we'll see on the thermal and when we pinpoint to figure out what that temperature is, it'll show up, you know, less than that. As far as the drone itself goes, did you have to do any modifications since you purchased it or did it come with all the capabilities that it, that it has at the moment? So when we purchased the unit in, in the first place, we made sure that we got what we wanted, which was the entry level, uh, thermal drone that the company offered, um, we haven't really made any changes to it. Um, we've gotten extra accessories like more batteries. Uh, we've replaced the controller. We've gotten new props. But the nice thing about a drone is that the continued operating cost is extremely low compared to any other air asset. Um, you're not paying for a pilot. You're not paying for fuel. You're not paying for any of that. You're paying for the insurance on it, and that's it. Do you think that you've become more knowledgeable about maybe the role of the sheriff's department and volunteer fire departments by being involved with operations that they're on that maybe you wouldn't have had that type of knowledge otherwise? 
Uh, yes, that's one of the big things that I've kind of learned. Um, one of my things that I've been working on personally is trying to get more in involved in emergency management. Um, while I'm pursuing a degree of, at civ of civil engineering at Michigan Tech, I've recently, over the last several years, found that emergency management is something more fun to me, uh, more interesting, because you're trying to solve an issue quickly. Um, and recently, over the past several years, I've been working on getting my professional emergency manager certificate. Uh, I've taken, I don't know how many classes now uh, in what's called Incident Command System, um, which is a organizational structure and leadership program that basically teaches you what you need to do or like how each role is, I should say, how each role is in a incident. And within the organization, have you taken part in just about all the different roles that are out there? Yes, I've done stuff from planning to operations to the financials to logistics. Um, the role that I've always kind of been put into, um, which I prefer anyway, is logistics. So figuring out, well, you know, you, you're, you have several hundred people on an incident. How do you feed them? How do you get them bathrooms? How do you transport them? You know, things like that is what I found very interesting. And so speaking of logistics, when we're talking about the drone, I'm assuming it's op operating off of some sort of battery power, or is there a range? You know, what what are the capabilities for it before you need to recharge it in some capacity? So our current unit can fly for about 25 minutes. Um, it does have a battery that is self-feeding, uh, great for the winter. Um, we do have quite a few batteries on hand that we're able to continuously charge. We have enough batteries plus two to keep operation going continuously. So basically if a battery dies, by the time that battery is needed again, it's fully charged, plus we have two more. Um, <laughs> um, so it is battery power. We, we can only fly within line of sight, uh, according to the FAA. We have to, like I said before, we have to follow all the rules and regulations that they set forth. So there's not a whole lot of help you can give, at least from the air, say over Lake Superior you're going to have to be very close to the shoreline just because of the um, restrictions that are being placed on you by not just government agencies, but the capabilities of the drone itself. Yeah. So like our, our unit can fly over, you know, the Portage Canal. It can go off a little bit on, over to Lake, Lake Superior, but you're not, we're not going miles offshore. You know, we, we can cover for about 500 to 1,000 feet away from the shore, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, it just... It's just too windy. There's other factors involved with that. That if it goes down, well, we we can't get a new one um, because our the way our insurance is set up is we have to recover in order to get a new one. <laughs> People who join, obviously, if they are a student at Tech and they graduate and move somewhere else, they're not going to be able to stick around. But do you find that this spurs kind of a lifelong interest in this particular field? Yes, I think so. There's a, there's quite a few members from Michigan Tech that have gone. Um, they've completed their degree. They were part of us at one point. They left, and now they've come back, and they've come back with more experience. They've come back to join our our team and get back involved in the local community. Um, there's quite a few members that are even outside that have not returned yet, but you know they've been heavily involved in areas like this, you know, search and rescue, emergency management, incident response.